Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, book lover. I am so glad you are here listening to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. This show is a passion project for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy making it. I only interview authors whose books I have read and enjoyed, so if I am chatting with an author on the main show, it means that I really liked their book and feel comfortable recommending it to you. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I work hard to find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Are you looking for an engaging book community with unique bonus content? If so, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon community, which is filled with a wonderful group of readers. I offer three levels, page turners, lit lovers, and royal readers, and each level provides all sorts of cool bonus book content that you will not find elsewhere. If you're interested or want more information, the link to join is in my show notes. Today, I am chatting with Ritu Mukherjee about murder by degrees. Ritu was born in India and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. From a young age, she has been an avid reader of mysteries, from golden age crime fiction to police procedurals and the novels of P.D. James and Ruth Rendell. She received a B.A. in history from Columbia University and a medical degree from Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. She completed residency training at the University of California, Davis, and has been a practicing internist for 15 years. She lives in Marin County, California, with her husband and three children. I really enjoyed this book. It was a traveling galley for my Patreon group, as well as a spoiler-filled conversation for my Lit Lovers Patreon level. I also made it an October Buzz Read selection. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Welcome, Ridu. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Cindy. I'm so glad you're here. I really enjoyed Murder by Degrees, and I can't wait to chat about it. I'm looking forward to it, too. Why don't we start out with you giving me a quick synopsis of Murder by Degrees for those that haven't read it yet? So Murder by Degrees is a medical historical mystery. It's set in 1875 Philadelphia, 10 years after the end of the Civil War. It takes place at Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. 
which was one of the first medical schools for women in the United States. And our protagonist, Dr. Lydia Weston, is a professor and an anatomist, and she investigates the disappearance of a young patient. And so as she's drawn into this police investigation, she learns more about this young woman she thought she knew. And, you know, what I hope to create with this novel is a very immersive, twisty mystery that draws on a lot of influences that I'm interested in, early forensic medicine, the history of these women doctors, 19th century medicine, Victorian poetry. I have so many questions, but my very first one is, is this a series or a standalone? This is a series, and I'm working on the second book right now. I think people are going to be very happy to hear that because when I was going back through the Goodreads reviews, a number of people said, I hope this is a start to a series. It seems like it's a start to a series. So I think you're going to have a lot of people very pleased with that answer. (laughs) I'm so glad. And I think, you know, I myself am such an avid reader of mystery and crime fiction. And I just love when a series develops just to see how a character evolves and, you know, as time passes. So it's, it's a very interesting thing as a writer to do, I think. I love mystery series. In fact, I'm doing, I don't even know what I could call it. I'm doing a kind of highlighting of mystery series on my Instagram account. And it's just sporadic. And I'm just talking about different series and what I like about them and how many books are in the series and what they're about. And I really like the ones that have unique protagonists. And that's what will make yours stand out. I couldn't agree more. I, you know, I'm always drawn to these novels where, you know, kind of an unconventional, independent investigator, if it's a woman, even better, is, you know, our interpreter and guide, you know, through through the the story after a horrific crime has been done. I mean, there's just so much about a detective story is so appealing um, and just the creative way writers work within the genre. So those are my favorites, too. Absolutely. Well, was there an inspiration for Lydia Weston? There was. Uh, you know, I... I would say probably one of the biggest influences for this book was the time that I spent in Philadelphia as a medical student. I, you know, lived there for about five years. And while I was there, I lived at Ninth and Pine Street, for those who are familiar with the city. And I spent a lot of ex- time exploring that neighborhood. And it's, a, it's really a fascinating, very atmospheric place where kind of the layers of history are embedded into modern life. And I always think of Philadelphia as a historical city, you know, Independence Hall, Independence Square. But what I really discovered while I was living there is how much of the history of American medicine is there. So places like old and historic medical schools, specialty hospitals, the Mutter Museum, these College of Physicians has a historic reading room and library. And it was interesting to me that you know, while I was living there, obviously, I was really focused on my studies as a medical student, you know, going from the library to the to the hospital to the to the lab. It was only years later, after I left that I learned of women's medical college. And I was so fascinated and inspired by the real life stories of this, these women. It was really then that I was thinking about writing a mystery novel. And I just knew when I found that, what a unique setting and what a unique protagonist I could create out of it. And so I really delved into doing research, uh, you know, drawing on the real life stories of these trailblazing women doctors. And in many ways, Lydia is very much a fictional composite of them. Were there many women doctors working in the late 1800s in Philadelphia? So this was actually a, a very rare and I would say unusual situation. So, you know, as, as a doctor myself and who someone who grew up 
you know, wanting to study medicine, I knew the name of individuals like Elizabeth Blackwell, kind of these inspirational pioneers who had, you know, gained admission to medical schools as individuals. And so the idea of an institution, a medical school that was training women was very new and unique at that time. So this particular school, Women's Med in Philadelphia, was founded in 1850 by Quakers because a lot of women as individuals were drawn to study medicine. And what was happening is they were being taken on in apprenticeships with you know, physicians, and there was no place for them to continue their education. So a group of people, many of them Quaker physicians, actually thought to found a medical school. And the reason I chose 1875 is because it was a time when Women's Medical College was really at the height of its operations. You know, women students, women faculty, they had sort of adopted this thing called the progressive course, which was a very rigorous curriculum that could stand on par with, um, you know, medical schools like the University of Pennsylvania. But what fascinated me about this particular time is you have this setting where women are supported in their education. But there is stiff opposition to their work outside this environment. So the idea of getting a job after you graduate, the idea of doing postgraduate training, like an internship or a residency, was very difficult to get entry into medical societies where you could share your work or network with other doctors. There was a lot of opposition to women doctors doing this. So that tension was really interesting for me as a writer to explore this environment that was very supportive that was very focused on helping women doctors earn the MD degree, but then the outside world where there was just so much opposition to their work. You can spend all this time getting your degree, but then what are you going to do with it? Exactly. And, you know, what was fascinating to me is how many of these women doctors found these incredibly creative work opportunities. So some went into private practice alone. Some went to remote locations in the United States and were like the only doctor around. Some became what we call sanitary inspectors, so did really important public health work where they would go into tenements or you know poor low-income neighborhoods and do public health work. Some became superintendents of mental hospitals, you know, as, as the kind of doctor in charge. Some were medical missionaries who traveled all over the world setting up hospitals and clinics. So it was just a fascinating group of people. And, you know, it was just deeply inspiring to me as someone who has studied medicine herself, who understands what it's like to go through medical school and medical training. And, you know, I created this book, obviously, as a work of fiction, but I really do hope readers will be inspired to, to know more about these real life women. Was it really interesting and somewhat frustrating to you as you were researching some of these women to realize how difficult it would have been to try to practice as a doctor back then and being female? Oh, yes. I mean, just as some examples, you know, there was uh, in the class of 1878 was one of the first black women physicians, Dr. Carolyn Still Anderson. There was a group of international students. There's a very famous picture that's kind of widely available on the internet and Google of three international students, one from Japan, one from Syria, and one from India kind of dressed in their traditional dress. And they had come to Philadelphia to earn medical degrees and then go back to their home countries to practice medicine. I mean, it's just mind-boggling to me in a way to imagine 
you know, the depth of commitment to do that in a society that's really not encouraging you at all. And just to keep going to find these creative ways of working. And, you know, at times I would read, you know, I did a lot of research, a lot of research into their stories and kind of reading fragments of diaries and letters. And, you know, they would describe something that felt so modern and relevant, you know, how to balance the personal and the professional, how to feel respected for your life's work. I mean, these are timeless themes that we can really understand today. It had to just be so interesting to take yourself back 100 years or really actually more almost 150 years, I guess. It's true. You know, one of the things there were so there were so many layers of research that needed to be done to create the historical world. And actually, before I had the characters, before I had the story and the narrative constructed, I created the world. I really had to envision this place. And that was as much for the reader as it was for me. And one of the really fascinating things was thinking like a 19th century doctor. <laughs> and this is to me, you know, medicine today, There, we have so much sophisticated technology, so many, you know, imaging, laboratory testing, and to really take a step back in this time, no antibiotics, no steroids, no x-ray imaging. And to think about what it would have been like to examine a patient, what treatments would have been available. In the book, I describe uh, Lydia is examining a patient with glomerulonephritis. This is a very common inflammation of the kidneys. And there are many reasons for it. There are many treatments for it nowadays. But it was just fascinating. I read this medical article from the medical journal, The Lancet from 1876. And they're describing at that time, it was called Bright's disease. And this was, it was named after Sir Richard Bright, who was the English physician who first kind of described the constellation of symptoms. But reading through some of the treatments of what they used, was just, you know, you're alternately horrified and then alternately amazed at, you know, kind of the ingenuity and what they were able to do with, with what they had. Um, so it was just fascinating details like that to go back. And, you know, in many ways, medicine really has its own language, you know, these archaic terms, root words and phrases in Latin. And I think that was really something that I, I tried to, to think about and work with in so many ways that language can really devolve into dry, dull, technical detail. And I always think of the doctor writers that I love to read, like Oliver Sacks or Abraham Verghese. And it's how to make that language, you know, very evocative, but understandable, you know, so that someone who's not familiar with medicine is, is drawn in, is interested. And so I think there are a lot of scenes in the book, like the hospital setting or the autopsy or in the anatomy lab where, where I really tried to do that. And you do create a very strong sense of place, both for the medical setting, but also for the city of Philadelphia. And did you have to really work at that for the city as well? That was also that was probably besides the medical detail, the other huge amount of research. I, I just feel this so strongly. I love to read historical mysteries myself. I love historical fiction, history. And I think you just, in order to do justice to the city, to the people who love it, you just have to really go very deep into, you know, learning, you know, what what would it have felt like to walk down the street? What would you see? What would you smell? What would be the sounds? So I did a lot of research into, you know, different places, kind of these evocative scenes in the book, like at the Fairmont Waterworks on the Schuylkill River, or like neighborhoods in the old city, 
this is actually where I just absolutely love to dive into the research. It really does not feel like work to me. So for example, the medical school is at a location, North College and 22nd Street in Philadelphia. And it's across from this, um, it was like a boys school, it's called the Girard College. And so, you know, I could see this on a map, but, and it's obviously very different place in the modern day. But what I found online in the course of my research was this wonderful historical map. So what you do, it's, it's a, a website where you can get the, the map of the modern day uh, Philadelphia. So you have the modern city, and then you can overlay historic maps on top of it. So, uh, you know, what I would do is put like the 1871 ordinance map on top, kind of overlaid on the map of Philadelphia. And this was really fascinating because, you know, when Lydia gets off at the omnibus stop and walks to the college, what is she seeing? What does the neighborhood look like? What are the streets like? Is it more row houses? Is it more an industrial neighborhood? So I really wanted to create that detail for the reader so that they could be really immersed in this world. And transported there. Exactly. I, th I think that makes, that makes so much of it. It's so important to the story. I agree. And you mentioned this already, but you're a practicing physician. When did you find time to write? So I wrote this book while working as a doctor, and I used the time that I had available. Honestly, it, you know, with the, the busyness of my life and my work schedule, I also have three school-age children um, at home who you know, saw this book kind of created throughout their childhood. And so because of this busyness, I really created a very simple routine. I would work early in the morning and late at night. So I would often get up very early in the morning and work for a couple of hours before I went to my job as a doctor. And then you know, at the same time later at night after the kids were asleep and you know, dinner was over and the house was quiet, I would work in the evening. And this worked very well for me because it was a time when the house was quiet, I was free from, you know, responsibilities and I can really let my, you know, imagination run free and it ended up being this really wonderful creative space for me. And the consistency of the routine, you know, I I sort of conditioned myself to, you know, I'm going to sit down every day at this time. It really helped me keep the creative momentum going. And have you always wanted to write and have you always wanted to write a mystery? So I've been an avid reader of mystery and crime fiction. I can remember in seventh grade, I discovered a Agatha Christie paperbacks in my middle school library. I read, and then there were none. And truly, there has been no looking back for me. So it was something that I have thought about for so long. You know, throughout the busyness of my life, reading has been a constant. So days as a medical resident, as a medical student, as a sleep-deprived new parent. I always have found time to read, and particularly mystery and crime fiction. So it was something that I had always thought about. And as I mentioned, it was really only years later after I left medical school that I thought I could do this. And it just came, became more important to me to try this creative thing. It was something that you know, had been in my mind, these interests, you know, 19th century medicine and my time in Philadelphia were kind of simmering in my mind. And then one day I just decided there's never going to be a good time to do this. There's never going to be the right time. My life is never going to be less busy. So if this is really important to me, I need to do it. Well, and it sounds like you created a really good schedule for yourself and just fit it into everything else that was happening. I did. And, you know, what I found too was that over time, through the writing of the book, I, do, I don't have a background in a writing career. 
And, you know, the research certainly felt like a very natural extension of what I was used to doing, you know, sitting for long hours, immersing myself in a subject that was very medical school like to me. The writing was challenging, you know, looking at the blank screen and sort of starting from from new, starting from scratch. But I really did discover there were so many things about my medical training that helped me write the book. So I knew how to set a deadline and meet it. I knew how to set a far off goal that felt elusive and difficult and kind of work slowly towards it and not get discouraged. And, you know, doing, as I mentioned, doing the research felt very natural. So I really did rely on some of those skills to do it. And by the time the pandemic came around, I had been working on this book for a few years. And I would say it's not an exaggeration to say it was really a lifeline for me at that time to have this space of creative renewal and retreat where I could work on something that gave me so much pleasure and, and have that. Absolutely, because I think the pandemic was terrible for all of us, but particularly for people like you who were really having to see day in, day out what was happening and how terrible and costly it was for so many people. Absolutely. And, you know, those days of just anxiety and uncertainty and, you know, the fear of what was going to happen next, particularly, you know, in the early days before the vaccine and working long days at the at the clinic and the hospital and just Again, it it was something, the writing was something so separate and so apart from that and just really helped me recharge and really helped my mind rest, honestly. I mean, it's not like I I sat down and an 80,000 word novel flowed out (laughs) by any means. (laughs) I mean, there were many days where it was very frustrating. I felt overwhelmed, but I had this space and I knew how to sort of reset and to say, you know, even if I'm feeling this is too much today, I can work on this paragraph, or I can read, you know, a few of these Victorian poems, or I'll think about what Lydia would do in this situation. And truly, that's how, you know, the momentum kept going over time. And I was able to finish the book. And it was a good escape. Absolutely. It so was. It was just a wonderful, creative space. What surprised you the most when writing the book? I was surprised by how some of the minor characters became more important over time. And I'm thinking specifically of Sergeant Davies. He is someone I envisioned in the beginning as just the foil to the inspector, you know, just maybe some observations, not a very important character. And I have to say, I have great affection for him as a character because I feel like you know, the relationship between him and Lydia, the, the friendship that develops is just a wonderful one. And the perspective, his view on women doctors and a lot of other things, you know, kind of class and wealth and different things that come up in the book are very important. So he was a character that had a lot more depth than I originally envisioned. And, you know, the character of Lydia also surprised me a little bit. So this was interesting to me always because I I remember as a reader reading authors' interviews and they would say, you know, I was surprised by how things turned out or I was surprised by how this character developed. And I'd be like, come on, how could that be? You're the creator. How do you not know, you know, exactly what your characters are going to do? But I do think Lydia definitely evolves over the course of the book in in ways that surprised me even a little bit. I I think of her as this very independent, very resilient person, you know, like these real life, quote, lady doctors, you know, she really has to be certain, she has to be confident. 
But sometimes that certainty and that confidence can make her a little bit rigid. And I think this relationship that she has with this young patient really shows some of her vulnerability, her ability to question herself. And I think that's what makes her a very nuanced character and and draws us to her. So that was also a little bit surprising to me through the course of writing. That's so funny that you comment on that, that authors will say things like that. And at the time you were like, hmm, because I hear that so often. I've just become used to hearing it, but it is funny. Yes, yes. Because you you just think, you know, as a reader, I, how, how could you not know exactly what your characters are going to do? You're, you're, you're creating them. So... But I guess that's part of the creative process. And as you begin to follow her book to book, I'm sure that will continue to happen. Yes. I think there are ways she's going to surprise me that I don't even know. Exactly. Well, I love the cover. And we talked about what a strong sense of place a story has. And the cover is so atmospheric. Was that how it started out? Can you tell me about the cover development? The cover did not change at all. This was uh, this beautiful, stunning, atmospheric cover was, you know, presented like this. And when I saw it, there were actually two choices. Uh, this was one, and then there was another choice. But when I saw this, I immediately knew this this would would be perfect. And I think there's so many elements here. I'm particularly drawn to that gas lamp. You know, the light. It's almost like a little beacon, and it you know kind of casts everything in shadow. But I love how this character who we can't really see, who's turned away from us, is sort of facing this beacon or lamp. And then, of course, the street gives so much atmosphere, you know, they're kind of rain-slicked, you know, cobblestone street. And then I do like how we can, although we don't see who the character is, we don't, you know, see her face, you know, she's holding this medical bag. So it just captures the mood of the book so beautifully. It's just so haunting, so atmospheric. I, I really loved it. And the gaslight immediately gives you a sense of time, which is what I loved about it. Yes, yes. You, it's so true. You know where you are. You know, you know, so anyone reading the book, okay, 19th century Philadelphia, you see this, this image and, and you're really there with the character. And I love when a cover can do that. And I, I like looking at it, reading the book, and then looking at it again and being like, okay, this truly does represent the book. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad you feel that way because I, I saw when I saw it immediately, I knew that, that it would just be perfect. There was really not a lot of discussion about it. <laughs> That's awesome when that happens. <laughs> yes, yes. Me too. You and I are going to have a Patreon discussion when we're done here. But before we wrap up on the regular show, I would love for you to tell me some books you read recently that you really liked. Yes. So I just finished uh, Sujatha Massey's The Mistress of Bhatia House. This was, I believe, the fourth novel uh, featuring Perveen Mystery. She is a lawyer in 1920s Bombay. And I'm a big fan of this series. It's a great historical mystery, and it features a woman investigator in a really unconventional role. And, you know, this time period, it's during the British Raj, it just touches on a lot of themes about, you know, the treatment of women, women's rights. And I think she really kind of highlights these social issues in a very modern and relevant way. So it's it's a great series. This particular book involves an investigation at, uh, Praveen is drawn into this investigation involving like a maternity hospital and a women's clinic. And it, it's, you know, just her descriptions are so vivid of the, the food, the culture, the social mores. So that's a wonderful read. And then I just read 
two others that I enjoyed, uh, Jane Harper's The Dry. And that, I found the setting so evocative. I love stories where the setting is so evocative. It's almost like a character itself. And this town in uh, Australia that the Western Australia, there, there's a drought and, you know, this severe drought kind of mirrors the, what's going on in the, um, you know, the crime story. And I always, you know, in situations like this, think of Henning Mankell, who wrote the Kurt Wallander mysteries and how that, you know, that stark, beautiful landscape in Sweden kind of mirrors, you know, what the characters are going through. So I'm really drawn to stories like that. And then I read S.A. Cosby's All the Sinners Bleed and loved it. I had not read anything by him before. And, you know, the story set in rural Virginia and the character of Titus Crown, it's, it's just a great crime novel. And again, another really evocative, immersive setting. All of my regular listeners are probably awaiting my response on Jane Harper because she is my all-time favorite author. So I'm sure as soon as you said her name, they were all like, Cindy's probably cheering in her chair (laughs) (laughs) because I love Jane Harper very, very much. And I love all of her books. Is that the first of hers that you've read? That is. And I'm looking forward to reading more. Got to read them all. Yes, absolutely. She is just fabulous. My favorite is The Lost Man, but I love them all. I agree with everything you said, and I love the way she brings Australia to life. And you do, you feel like you're out there parched under that hot sun and everything. So yes, so brilliant. Yes. uh, And I've heard wonderful things about the Sajada Massey books. And then the essay Cosby always sound good, but I'm a wimp and I think they're just too dark for me, but people always rave about them. Yes. Yeah. No, I really, this was the first one of his that I had read and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I always hear that. Well, Ritu, this has been delightful. I am so glad that you came on the Thoughts from a Page podcast, and I loved chatting with you about Murder by Degrees. Thank you so much, Cindy. I was delighted to be here, and I really hope your listeners enjoy the book. I am sure they will. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From A Page. If you enjoy this show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From A Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. 
I hope you'll tune in next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.